0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Uh, we're going to jump into Mark chapter 4. We're going to finish up the chapter today. We're going to be in verses 26 through 41. So if you turn there, Mark 4. These verses today, they are going to land us smack in the middle of some drama. So um, if you're a drama queen or a drama king, you're going to have a great time this week. Uh, now some of the drama these verses are going to put us into is, is with it's going to be between us and those who don't yet know Jesus, but some of it's going to be family drama. It's in-house drama uh, that, that spools up out of this, so. As we're reading Mark 4, 26 through 31, see if you can spot what I'm talking about. Uh, Don't worry if you don't miss it. I promise I'm going to point it out. Okay, so we're in Mark chapter 4, as I said, verses 26 through 31. Here we go. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up. By day, and the seed sprouts and grows, how he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Praise God for his word. Amen. All right, we're going to go back to the top. We'll kind of take it uh, the first two parables, work through those, and then we'll talk about... This uh, f- f- infamous now storm. So, verses twenty six through twenty nine, this this parable is is kind of a contrast, or it's it's really kind of looking to the other side of a coin, in, in kind of juxtaposed against the parable of the four soils that we talked about last week. The four soils parable it called us to be mindful and to be aware that we can have we can be different types of soil, right? We can be that soil that's along the path that's trodden down too tight for anything to take root. Or we can be that rocky soil that there's a thin layer but, and, and, and seed can start to take root, but then the concerns of the world that, you know, Jesus talks about the sun scorching it out. Or the, the thorny soil where it, it looks like good soil, but mixed in there are these cares of the world that rise up to choke out that faith that is growing. And then he talks about a fourth so a good soil. And so it, what it does is it helps us to realize that some of the responsibility and accountability for growth and fruitfulness is on us. It's for us to take a look at and be mindful and prayerful about what soil the condition of our heart is in. Uh, this parable of the growing seed, though, it, it keeps us from believing that growth and, and fruitfulness is completely up to us. Because though we should examine the soil of our hearts, we have to trust in faith that God is working his will in and through us. It talks about the fact that the, the, the farmer throws the seed down and he doesn't even know how it happens. There's, there's, he's talk, there's, there's a power in the seed, man. It's, it's amazing. He'll, he'll just, he goes to sleep. He's not out there hovering over it. And, and he'll come out one morning and, and out will be a blade. And then it continues to grow and then it can be harvested. And so... You, you may find yourself sometimes in a, in a position of asking the question or feeling frustrated or concerned, thinking, why am I not growing? Why did I not feel like I'm growing? Well, he, here's the beauty of what the Scriptures is constantly doing, what God is constantly doing through his inspired word. What he's doing is always putting us in a position of realizing we're not going to draw these these clean, thick black lines and make a grid that we can apply over every situation and always come up with the answer. The Bible is always leading us to this conclusion that we need God. We need God. We're going to see that all the way through this thing, but the point I'm making here is if you're wondering why am I not growing, you're concerned, why do I not feel like I'm growing? Well, it could be a soil issue you need to deal with, right? We saw that in the parable last week. Or it could be that you need patience to grow most of all so that you can trust the promise that God will never abandon the process that he began in you, right? Why do I feel like I'm not growing? Well, it could be that you have an issue with rocky soil or thorny soil or packed down soil. And that's, there may be repentance that needs to happen in that. And there may be uh, time in prayer and time in God's word to cultivate the, the soil of your heart. It could be a, a you thing. And, and we, what we would prefer, or it could be that this process we see in today's parable is happening. It's, it's just the process. And it isn't always as quick or as obvious at whatever stage you stop to look at it as we wish it would be. And so where does that, where does that leave us? Well, that's, that's, can we be honest? That's annoying because I would like an answer, not a maybe. Just Can you just tell me the answer? Right? Isn't that what we like? But God loves you too much to do that. So what does it drive you to? It drives you to him. How am I going to figure this out? Is it a me thing? Is it just a process? What, where am I at? What are you going to need to figure that out? Oh, well, you're going to need the Holy Spirit. <laughs> wow. You're going to need to go to God. You're going to need to submit to the, the refining process and the voice of the Holy Spirit. You're going to need to open yourself up to the input of the people of God whom he uses around you to help you work through stuff like that because you could sit there and just look at either side of this thing why do I feel like I'm not growing and just be chasing your tail running a hamster wheel frustrated it's not about me all the time you can write that one down amen sometimes we just need patience so we can trust the promise that God's not going to abandon the process that he began in you man that'd help us if we get a hold of it that was not the drama part We're about to hit it, okay? This is where the drama comes in. You ready? All right, let's read verses 30 through 34 again. It says, And he said, How shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches, so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. And with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them, so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Now, the first bit of drama that we run into here, as I said, is with those who do not yet follow Jesus, because they look at this parable with the mustard seed and all of that, and they, and they, they bring an issue. And I would say, depending on the heart of the questioner, it, it can be a legitimate question. Question or, or inquiry, uh, a lot of times this is used to be an example of someone that I, I think is just they're they're dead set on trying to prove the Bible wrong and this would be kind of a nitpicky place to go ha ha gotcha right if that's the spirit somebody's coming to you with with a question or you know inquiry a lot of times it's. <clears throat> that's that's not a person that, that is a person of peace that's even ready to hear an, an, a logical answer. And so sometimes you have to do your best just to love them and pray for them and move on to somebody that really does want to have a conversation. But if someone's, so, and part of why I'm saying that is, I, I don't, <laughs> I'm going to try my best not to be sassy as I explain this, but it might happen. So I don't, if someone's a genuine like seeker and this this troubles them as they're trying to, figure out if Jesus is trustworthy and all this can be accounted for, then I, I'm not being sassy at you. My sass is for, you know, those that are just, they're always just reading the scripture looking for gotchas, okay? So what is what is the problem? What's the big deal here? Well, Jesus says here, it's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, this some see as a problem, right? So I've, I've seen this brought up in this way. so if if Jesus is the son of god truly then why did he think the mustard seed is the smallest seed in the world because it's actually not there is a, a genus of orchids in asian rainforests that have seeds that are so small they basically look like dust to the human eye okay so this is not the smallest seed in the world but the f- first thing i think we need to understand about that and, 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 and trying to answer that, especially if this is somebody that's got a genuine question here, the nature of parables, right? We, we need to understand the nature and purpose of parables. The purpose of this parable, Jesus was not trying to give a botany lesson, okay? That's not what we're doing here. This is, he's, he's not focused so much on the plant. And in, in what he's doing in a parable is typically he's reaching for an example that would be well understood by his audience, okay? So he's talking to a bunch of folks from the Galilean region of, of that time. It's pretty safe to say none of them had hiked the Asian rainforest and seen the little tiny seed in the genus of orchid, right? Like this, but this was the seed they would have been most familiar with. It would have been a common reference point as something that's tiny. And, and furthermore, he says, uh, so when it's sown upon the soil... Uh, and it grows up to become bigger than all the other garden plants. And so he's even, there's a distinction there. It, it doesn't even seem like he's really claiming that the mustard seed is the smallest seed in the world. He's talking about seeds that are sown and seeds that grow up in the gardens of the people that he's talking to. Okay? Uh, so that's kind of on the practical side of that. But I, I think there's, there's a lens shift here that will help us, <laughs> especially as we're trying to understand parables. We're going to hit a lot more moving through Mark, okay? So you you could fixate on Jesus' description of the mustard seed here, and that he made a reference to it being the, the smallest, And, but that's not really the point. Um, and, and honestly, if you want to, if you really want to get at, if the question is, well, if Jesus really is the Son of God, why was he confused about what seed is the smallest? Again, I, th- I think there's really good practical surface level reasons to think that Jesus making the statement doesn't mean he wasn't aware of the, you know, rainforest orchid, okay, over in Asia. I, I'm sure he was. He's the God who created those things back in the day, right? When, you know, he said, said all things into existence, right. So, <clears throat> I think a better question for us would be, okay, so, so you could, if you're trying, so if really what you want to do is determine, is Jesus the Son of God? Is the best thing to do, really, like, nitpick what you think he's saying about the seed, or would it be to, to look at what he's actually saying in the parable and judge that? Like, what is the actual point of the parable? Did that come true, right? What, what about his proclamation about the kingdom of God? Did it come to pass? Because what is he really saying? What he's really saying is the kingdom of God's going to start out real small, like it is right now, what he's talking about. Right now, he's just a humble Galilean peasant that people are—he's done some stuff, and they're—they're they're still trying to figure him out. But not many people. Like we're talking about the world, not many people know about him. So, he, he, from a worldwide standpoint, when this was happening, he's not speak—you know—he's not speaking from a big place of authority in terms of whatever. It, the people who hadn't seen miracles or heard him teach yet—they would just—they just heard about this guy that's causing a ruckus. Nobody would even really listen to him so he's making big claims here because he's talking about this kingdom that i'm coming to talk about this kingdom actually that i'm the head of it's going to start out real small i know it looks small right now but here's what i'm telling you's going to happen with it like a mustard plant man it might look small now but it's going to it's going to go down in the ground it's going to get so big that lots of people are going to be able to come in from all around and find shade in its branches okay so did that really happen yeah it did Right? And what is, what is more logical and reasonable way to judge the authenticity of Jesus being who he claimed to be? Is it to nitpick this idea of the seed? The seed he chose for the parable? Or is it this big, historically verifiable claim he's making about his kingdom starting from a speck and becoming so big that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue can find refuge in it? Which, if you really want to judge, should Jesus be trusted? What's... Whether he got, whether, even if you don't buy the practical reasons why I don't think Jesus really thought the mustard seed was the smallest seed in the world, even if you don't believe, let's, let's say you're like, oh yeah, you know what? I don't know about that, but let's, let's come over here and just ask the question. This guy who came, who rose up from relative obscurity, (laughs) right? Starts making claims about this kingdom. He's coming and proclaiming and that it's going to get, It looks real small right now, but it's going to get real big. So now we're sitting here in 2020, we have all the benefit of hindsight. How has that gone? It's going pretty good. Right? There's a whole bunch of people all over the world this morning that woke up and sang a bunch of songs to this guy. Woo-wee! You're not excited enough about that. I'm telling you right now. (laughs) Ha! Man, that's awesome! I, I, that makes me want to listen to him about other stuff. Because what a claim, right? What a claim! Now, that's kind of the that's that's the the drama this can create with those who have not yet come to follow Jesus. But this this amazingly in these few verses, we we can stir some in-house drama as well, and and it does. Okay, so we're, the focus of that is. When it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Here's the drama point. What are the birds? Okay. What do the birds mean? Okay. This is a big deal. Uh, there's There's been much ink spilt and skerfuffling happen around the birds. Okay, so there's a couple different ways that people see this. I would say at face value, the most basic way to understand it is Jesus is talking about a little seed becoming a big tree, and then it's big enough that birds can land in it and find shade. And so basically the face value way to read this, I would say is positive. That basically the point Jesus is making here is about the growth of the kingdom. That it's going to come from small beginnings, get big enough that then birds could land in it, and find shade, which you wouldn't expect. If you didn't know what that seed was and you held it in your hand, you just, you wouldn't think that that was going to become something large enough, you know, and people argue about which kind of mustard seed it was and whatever. I I don't really care. I mean, there was a few different ones. They all got pretty big. Um, That's getting, that's getting too far into the weeds, I think, in trying to figure this out. But so you can either see this kind of positive, the birds, they're just, they represent people being able to come in and find refuge in the kingdom of God. But there are those that um, point out that this parable was probably spoken, it seems, unless there's a break that the writing doesn't tell us about. They remember, or they point back to the parable of the four soils, which to be fair to this position, Jesus did say is a key to understanding other parables, but they point back to the parable of the four soils and they say the birds in that parable represented Satan coming and stealing the seed, right? He's talking about the, the, the heart condition of of. Soil that's along the path and it's trodden down uh, and the birds can come along and and steal that seed. And and when he explains to his disciples what that's about, he says the birds uh, were were Satan coming to steal the seed. And so there are some that look at that and then they connect it to this and and then they see this as a warning. Uh, the, The birds coming in and lighting on the mustard plant. A warning about false believers and false prophets trying to sneak in uh, and do damage to the purposes of the kingdom and the body of Christ. Okay, so and that's that's pretty different, right? Depending on how you see that, that's going to affect the way you interpret the parable. So we need to know that. And, and normally, if you've been around here any amount of time, what you'd probably expect me to do at this point would be like, I, you know, I'd give you the two interpretations because there's I read faithful. Bible commentators and theologians who stood on one side of that thing, and I, I read ones that I trust on the other side. Most of the time what I would do is give you the two, and then I'd tell you to pray and do some study on your own. Um, and, and really, like b- because you've got faithful, tried and trusted Bible teachers on both sides, Like whichever way you land is, is okay, that's normally what I would do because some things are left unclear, right? The the scriptures say that we're we're looking through a glass dimly. Sometimes it just isn't as clear as we wish it would be. And I think it's fair and honest for us to say that and be willing to admit that as Christ followers and students of the word. Um, That is normally what I would do, but the Holy Spirit would not leave me alone on this one. And I could not figure out why. Um, and so it, it caused me. I just kept. I stayed on it, and um, I, I really think that the, the the first viewpoint, kind of seeing it from a positive light, that the birds, j- yes, the birds did represent Satan in the four soils parable, but it just it just doesn't seem to fit the flow of thought in this in this second one. Uh, and but it gets it gets even deeper than that. The, the the reason why I'm saying that I think that's where we land, and um, I. I think the reason the Holy Spirit kept pushing me about it is it's it's really the key to the whole parable. Seeing seeing something that's a little bit it's an, it's another level deeper. So I'm I'm going to take you I'm going to take you for a little bit of a deep dive here. And one thing I know there's there's a bunch of you in here who um, I would classify in the same group as me, and I would call you Bible nerds. And uh, so that's a fun group to be in. If you're a Bible nerd and you really like digging into this stuff, I read. I don't know four or five, maybe six different commentaries on this, and what I'm about to show you didn't come up anywhere other than a cross-reference in one study Bible that I had. And so what I'm asking for is, if you're somebody that's got a bunch of commentaries at home because you're a Bible nerd like me and you really like digging on stuff, go check this passage out and see if you can find anybody that brings what out what I'm about to bring out. It'd be great. I'd feel a lot better if I could find someone old and dead and trusted. Uh, that, like, also said this, okay? Um, you know, but to me, it's, <clears throat> it's crystal clear when, when you look at what this cross-reference is that I'm going to show you. So I, I think it's undeniable that this phrase about the birds of the air is actually a quote, and it's from possibly three different places, but I'm going to show you two. One is in Ezekiel, and one is in Daniel. It's, it, it has, this has to be, and once you tie it all together, there's just no way... What, what Jesus means by this, I guess, could still be debated, but there's no way he's not pointing to this. And I'm sure somebody's wrote about it or caught on to it. I just couldn't find it. Okay. Let me read you this. This is from Ezekiel 31. All right? What are we talking about? We're talking about the, what, what does Jesus mean with this birds thing, right? And it's I'm also pushing on it because it makes this much more beautiful. So do this is not, but this point right here is not the point for you to nod out on me. That'll be later. You can do that. Okay? Not right now. You're going to have to click in here and listen for a second. Because, like I said, we're going down a level. All right. Ezekiel 31. In the 11th year, in the third month, on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his hordes, Whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches and forest shade, and very high, and its top was among the clouds. The waters made it grow, the deep made it high. With its rivers, it continually extended all around its planting place and set out its channels to all the trees of the field. Therefore, its height was loftier than all the trees of the field, and its bows became many, and its branches long because of many waters as it spread them out. All the birds of the heavens nested in its bows, and under its branches all the beasts of the field gave birth, and all great nations lived under its shade. So it was beautiful in its greatness in the length of its branches, for its roots extended to many waters. The cedars in God's garden could not match it. The cypress could not compare with its boughs, and the plain trees could not match its branches. No tree in God's garden could compare with it in its beauty. I made it beautifully with the multitude of its branches, and all the trees of Eden which were in the garden of God were jealous of it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it is high in stature and has set its top among the clouds, and its heart is haughty in its loftiness, therefore I will give it into the hand of the despot of the nations. He will thoroughly deal with it. According to its wickedness, I have driven it away. And so what we have here first is a prophetic reference from Ezekiel to the Pharaoh of that time about Assyria, one of a nation that rose up in its pride. It's compared here to a mighty cedar that that is it would make the, the trees of Eden jealous. And the same language is used about birds being able to find its nesting there. But what was the what was the end fate of this great mighty tree that rose up in its haughtiness and pride? God cut him down, right? Okay, that's one. That's Assyria. Daniel 4 Now, these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. This is Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, giving a vision to Daniel for Daniel to interpret. As I was looking, behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches." And all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar sees this tree. We got the same language going on, right? About the birds finding their, their home and shade in it. Here's what the angelic uh, messenger says He shouted out and spoke as follows Chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground but with a brand a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him if you know the book of daniel know that this prophecy happens nebuchadnezzar does end up for a long time out living in the field like an animal it's basically part of his punishment for his pride this sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men so what do we have these were two kings in two kingdoms cut down and laid low because of their pride and their stance against the holy one of israel that's what both of those prophecies were but here we see jesus speak of a kingdom that will never ever suffer that fate here we see jesus talk about this it, he, he doesn't compare it to a cedar he compares it to a mustard plant something you would you would never see this coming man and, and what does he talk, they're, they're, this, this kingdom is going to provide the same kind of shade those other ones thought they were going to forever, but it's never going to stop. Come on now, what, is, what does that mean? If you're going to compare a great king or a kingdom to a tree, everyone would expect you would use a mighty cedar, just like in Ezekiel and Daniel. That's, that's the tree you would look to, I mean they're, they're big and majestic and they're great. They're kingly trees, right? But here, Jesus uses a mustard plant as analogous to the way that the Savior, kingdom, the savior King and his kingdom arose. And that is an origin story that no one would have ever guessed. And, it, and how do we know that that's really what he's... Well, think about it, friends. You had, you had the king of Assyria that rose up the way he did. You had Nebuchadnezzar that rose up the way he did. P- pretty standard fare, man. It's the way you'd expect kings to come into power, but how did Jesus come into His own? How did Jesus come into His kingdom? Man, He started out in a stable, born to a virgin girl, man, unmarried, no fanfare, not in a palace, not. And no one thought Messiah was going to come that way, and, and they didn't even they couldn't have even possibly understood all that Messiah was coming to do. They thought he was they thought they were going to get a military leader who was going to finally rise up and restore the nation of Israel to her glory. Would they get? And they got to save your king that laid down and died so that the world could be saved. Mustard seed, man. Next time you think silent night, think about a mustard seed. Because that's what it was. Jesus coming up, you know, his own his own family, we just read last week, thought he was nuts. Not, none of the honor you would expect. None of the fanfare. He didn't come the way you expect kings, eternal kings to come. And he came tiny like a mustard seed. But boy, let me tell you, this one's not getting cut down. This one isn't, isn't rising up in pride against the Holy One of Israel. This one has the Holy One of Israel as its king. Amen. Hallelujah. And if you, if you see the birds of the air... And you understand that that's Jesus quoting either Ezekiel or Daniel or both and making this contrast with what he's building versus what those kingdoms built. That parable takes on a whole different, yeah, I think, I think it is positive, but it's, man, it's like five levels deeper than just even what the normal debate is about. So, amen. That's good. I'm excited. But I'm more excited about it than you are, I can tell you that right now. Way more. You'll get. Hopefully you get it later. I know that was a lot, and I read you a bunch of prophecy from Old Testament books, but the point is uh, Jesus talking about a different kind of kingdom. Is gonna, it's going to go down a different kind of way. And, and you know what the coolest thing about it is? It has. <laughs> he said this 2,000 years ago, man, so you want to debate about mustard seeds or orchid seeds or whatever, you want to get caught up on that, man, I guess that's your prerogative, but here's what I'm real stoked about. This guy that nobody had any reason to to really listen to at that point said some stuff about how this kingdom was going to rise and what it was going to do. It was going to start real small and it was going to get real big and it was going to provide refuge for a whole bunch of people and it has, it has, and it's going to continue to forever. Amen. All right. That brings us to uh, verses 35 through 41. 41. Uh, let's, let's just read it one more time, make sure we know where we're at. This is pretty familiar, but let's orient ourselves. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. There arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, Do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, this story has so much in it. Honestly, I'm not exaggerating. We could do a month of Sundays and maybe more just here in these six verses. But, I want to key in on one thing um, because we can't say everything. So the question I want to pose to you is that these, these disciples, they ended up in a storm here. Is that right? My question to you is why? Why did they end up in a storm? The answer is, on one level at least, they obeyed Jesus. They obeyed Jesus, and for it, they ended up in a storm. That's interesting, isn't it? We're gonna, we're gonna, you're going to find real quickly, we're going to get back to the same place here that we were with the first parable. Well, why am I not growing? Well, it could be a few things. You're going to have to have the help of the Holy Spirit to figure it out. We're going to find also that when it comes to storms in our lives, sometimes we end up in storms because we obeyed Jesus. And some people have a theological framework where right now their ears are smoking because the gears are grinding up in their brain and they're stopping. It's like, hold hold on a second, because they believe, they actually believe that if they obey Jesus, that Jesus then owes them a good life on their terms. Oh, but but Jesus is so much better than that. He loves us so much bigger than that. He's not just going to, deal with us on our terms or just give us what we think is right in our sweet little heads. Sometimes, when the last thing we thought we would need is a storm, he leads us right into one. But let's not overcorrect because uh, there's there's that tendency to believe that, well, if I I obey Jesus, then uh, everything should be pretty cool the way I think it should go. But then on the other side, there's an overcorrection where people think, well, there's a lot of verses in the Bible that talk about obeying Jesus, and that that means you know there's going to be persecution and difficulty and and there's this, there's this idea that then it's only ever going to be storms if we follow Jesus. That's also an overcorrection, right? because yes, the disciples did end up in this particular storm on the Sea of Galilee because they obeyed Jesus, but also there was someone else that ended up in a storm one time as a direct result of their disobedience. His name was Jonah. And so when you have somebody that wants to oversimplify theology or they like easy answers because they don't like thinking or they just don't like feeling unsure or they don't like the reality that oftentimes interpreting the life events that we're going through is going to require a direct connection to the Holy Spirit and leaning upon his guidance that you're not going to find a clear, plain answer in the scriptures every time to look at what's going on in this moment and say, okay, I can peg it. Or that you're going to be able to sit there with your mental faculties and say, okay, I know for sure right now because I have superior logic abilities, I can figure out why I'm in this storm. Sometimes you'll be in a storm because of your disobedience. Because what God is doing with that storm is trying to take you and move you out of the path of even greater destruction if you continue to go away from him. Sometimes you'll be in a storm because you are headed in the exact right direction. And God loves you. And he does things in the midst of these storms that can't happen any other way. Storms can move us away from sin and self-destruction or they can show us we are headed in the exact right direction. There's, there's another interesting contrast as you think about Jesus in this boat and this storm and you think about Jonah on the boat he was on and that storm. In the story of Jonah, uh, the only chance that the sailors had, they figured out, was to throw Jonah off the boat because it was the storm was upon them as a result of Jonah's disobedience. If you're not familiar with the story, let me, let me not assume everyone is. God called Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh to preach the good news that repentance was available to them. And uh, Jonah basically decided, no, I don't want to do that. The Ninevites are disgusting people and I don't want to deal with them. So he hopped a boat going the opposite direction of Nineveh thinking he was going to outrun God. So that didn't go good. Uh, a storm rises up, and eventually they, you know, Jonah realizes this is because of me. And he, you know, they're chucking everything off the boat, trying to keep from capsizing. And Jonah says, you guys got to toss me in. So the sailors throw him in. He's swallowed by uh, some type of large fish, is in the belly of that fish three days, and then is spit up on the beach not too far from Nineveh with a new attitude. <laughs> <laughs> about whether he's going to go talk to them about repentance and the good news about God. So, um, but it's interesting that those sailors, the only shot they had was to pick Jonah up and chuck him off the boat. These sailors in this story in Mark four, and keep in mind, these guys aren't all terrified because they're poor. Uh, they're just, you know, don't know what they're doing. Remember five of the 12 disciples were seasoned fishermen and this was their lake. This was their spot. They knew this place. So this also wasn't just some run-of-the-mill storm. Uh, This was was serious business and, and and this was something that was beyond the capability. If these guys couldn't navigate this storm, is what I'm saying to you. Nobody could. It wasn't a matter of just if they had done something different with the oars or whatever. This they were in a position where it was out of their control. They had to throw Jonah off the boat in that in that storm. The only chance these sailors had was the fact that Jesus was on that boat and that they stuck in the boat where Jesus was, right? Because when a boat's pitching and lurching and it's filling with water and it looks like it's about to go down, man, it could, it could be tempting even if you got Jesus on that boat. If, he, if, it, if you know, he's sleeping and if, if you're starting to possibly believe the lie that he's, uh, he's up there sleeping... Because he doesn't care that we're perishing, or because he's not aware that we're perishing, or that he somehow is not going to help us. If, if you're believing any of those lies, you could, you could start looking at the boat, it's filling with water, it looks like it's going to go down, you start looking at that sea, like man, yeah, that looks bad too, but you could start thinking about jumping off that boat. The only chance they had was to stay close to the master. You guys understand what I'm talking about? It's the only shot we got. And what we find is the issue is never that our king does not care that we feel as if we're perishing. It's never the issue. It's interesting that Jesus uh, was was asleep up in the front of the boat. It's interesting that uh, there there seems to be a connotation here that the Lord kind of set this up, (laughs) that he knew. My question to you is, you might be like, oh, I don't know about that. Did Jesus know there was going to be a storm? Uh Uh-huh. He did. And did he say, let's go across the lake right when he said it? Yep. He absolutely did. And what was the end outcome? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They had seen some miracles thus far. Guys, we've been reading through Mark. Shriveled hands have been healed. Right? Big stuff is happening. Stuff they've never seen before. That was the comments a few weeks ago from the, the onlookers. We've never seen anything like this. But they were still, and, and, the, and we, we, it's interesting here. So, everything that's happened thus far, does, they don't have enough faith yet to trust Jesus in the midst of a storm. Because they saw him do all that stuff, but they can't even imagine yet that he can tell a storm, shh, and that it would listen. But then they get to see that. But then it's, it's amazing as we continue on. Even this doesn't lead them to the place you would assume it leads them. I mean, all the way up until his death upon the cross, they're still like, what is happening? Who is this? <laughs> right? They're still, they're still scared. They're still not sure he can be trusted. And friends, it'd be very easy for us to look at the disciples thinking, man, if I was in the boat with Jesus, I would have just enjoyed it like a roller coaster because I know he's there and I know he's got me. No, no you wouldn't. Okay? Take the boat and, and transpose that onto the last storm you had in your life, whatever that looked like. It would be very easy for us to get on the disciples and honestly the disciples have more reason to get on to us because we have the hindsight, we have the benefit of hindsight they didn't have because at this point, yes, he had healed some folks and he had done some things that no one else had done. He taught some ways that no one had ever heard. Clearly, there was something different about him. But what they had not had the chance to see yet was him say, destroy this temple and three days later I'll raise it up and then for him to go and to submit a beating and a crucifixion and to bleed out and die on a cross and to be wrapped in burial linens and be stuck in a tomb, and then three days later, come up out of that tomb. But we have seen that. So what area is left for us to doubt in? He's the teacher and he's the healer and he's the feeder of thousands and he's the storm calmer and he's the one who rose from the grave. And so in what storm, dear friends, do we in this day have any reason for doubt? All we need to do, all we must always do, is stay close to the Master, to cling to Him. Hallelujah. And that, friends, from beginning to end, it leads us to the gospel. What did they need? They, they were bailing water. They were shrieking in terror. They were rowing those oars. They, were, they did everything they could. And these were the these were professional fishermen, and that was their body of water. They'd been through storms, hundreds of storms in their lifetime. Surely, this one was going to take them down. This one led them to what? And here's the, this is the, the this is what's going to be hard. Let me I'm going to help you with something right now. Look, he's getting all flustered. Watch out. It's, 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 dots just connected for me that I, I need to connect for you. Here's here's the bottom. Line. I'm gonna, I'm going to help you realize that that first parable about the seed growing and us needing to trust the process and where we're at in that. Let me help you with a litmus test for where we stand. To the degree that you can accept this truth, okay? Jesus in taking them through that storm, Put them in a position, yet again, to realize the only shot they had was him. God will continually throughout your life, as much as you think, whatever you've been through, you think, you think you've got that down? read through the scriptures man read through the stories why was why did god raise up kings and let them get real big and prideful and haughty and then cut them down what is this over from genesis to revelation what is this lesson over and over and over again we see god is constantly bringing what did He do with the law what was the point of the law the law was a tutor to show us what we can't keep the law what does that lead us to that we need what we need redemption and salvation from who from God alone. We need him, we need him. And to the degree that you are willing to buy into this idea that your life is going to be a series of valleys and mountains and that God and his great love for you will continue to take you into places that bring you to your knees, that bring you screaming from the other side of the boat, Lord I need you or I'm gonna perish. to the degree that you can see that as his great love for you because the greatest need in your life is not whatever comforts you feel like you don't have right now. The greatest need in your life is to realize and be convinced forever of your need for him. That's it. And that is the gospel. That is the point It's to lead us to this understanding that we need God. You didn't just need him the day you realized you were a wretch if this has happened for you and that you bowed your knee, surrendered, and asked Jesus to be your savior. You you didn't just need him that day. You need him every day, all the time. We can't do this. He is the vine. We are the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. If you want a big summary mega theme of what the scriptures are trying to pound into our pretty little heads, it's that message. We can't walk and chew gum on our own. We can't even walk on our own. We need him. And that's the gospel, friends. And yet, every other message in this world is going to claw and fight and stand in stark contrast to that message. Everything else you're going to hear is going to be about what you can do and what I can do and self-sufficiency. And it, it, it takes a supernatural, miraculous act of God for us to even be able to conceptualize and come to the faith to believe that grace is a real thing. It's so crazy that we can be the ones who commit cosmic treason against a perfectly good and holy God and that that God can choose to take the punishment in our place for our sins through Christ upon the cross, and then, in his great sovereignty, decide that if we will trust in faith that that sacrifice is sufficient, that the righteousness Jesus earned would be given to us as a gift. That doesn't even compute unless the Spirit of God come and does a miracle in your heart. And it will take a continual renewing and transforming of your mind forever to stay in the place of realizing how beautiful that is. <laughs> this, this, is, this, is this is why. The vein in my forehead starts to pop when people say, well, Christianity and all other religions, they're all teaching the same thing, basically. <laughs> no, they're not! No! Every other man-made philosophy in the world has something to do with you earning the deity's favor somehow. By doing enough good things or staying away from bad things or looking deep enough inside yourself, Christianity is the only, only message that says, you've broke it, God has fixed it, will you trust him? Jesus and his gospel is what makes Christianity stand alone. And friends, we must, that's why we have to be bold about speaking it. That's why we have to be bold about living it. That's why walking in grace and in the light of supernatural love is so important. People that have experienced this kind of grace, people that have this kind of mercy poured out upon them, friends, love, that love should be our nature. To be loved as we've been loved? man. That's why we're called to just go pour it into this world. That people, that others will have a chance to taste and see and know the goodness of this God, this Christ our King. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, thank you. Thank you for these seed parables. Thank you for the depth. Thank you, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed planted that when it sprouts up, it's big enough for people from all over the world to come and find shade and refuge in its branches. Thank you that it's ever growing and that every single person that comes and finds that shade and refuge that you've called then to invite others to come to find rest in you. Lord, help us. Help us take that seriously. Help us view every minute of our lives through the lens of gospel mission. Lord, help us to see that everything we do in our homes, loving our spouses, loving our children, loving our neighbors, loving our family, everything, going to the store, that all, all that we do, God, there's potential in all of it to point people to this beautiful kingdom, this mustard seed kingdom, the kingdom no one would have ever saw coming, the kingdom no one would expect, a kingdom of grace and mercy Salvation through faith alone. God, thank you. Thank you for showing us in your word, for having it be recorded, this event on the boat. Lord, we are often tempted to believe the lie that you don't care if we perish, that you're uninterested in what's going on. But Lord, we know as we sit underneath the ministry and the teaching of your Holy Spirit right now, In the power of your word, we know the truth. The truth is, sometimes we're in storms because we're disobedient and you're lovingly redirecting us away from danger. But sometimes we're in storms because you are there with us, leading us through and you're doing something in us. And so God, we entrust ourselves into your hands. You have shown us enough. You have done far more than is needed for us to be able to trust you. Whatever life looks like right now, whatever it looks like six months from now and six years from now, God, you have shown us enough. If if all we knew was that Christ came, if all we knew is that he lived perfectly in our place, if all we knew was that he died for us and then rose from the grave like he said he would, if that's all we knew, God, there would be enough evidence for us to lay ourselves into your hands and say, we trust you, Father. So please help us stay there not just in theory, but in practice. We don't want to be hearers only, God. We want to be doers of your word for your glory, O King, and for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give...